Trump and the Republicans continue their coup attempt, but the Supreme Court says get over it, and the Electoral College remains faithful. We're barely clinging to democracy here on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. And Ike to you, and Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 355 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. At some point, Donald Trump is going to disappear from the scene, enabling us to stop obsessing over his tweets and rants and insults and challenges to democracy, not to mention his complete abdication of leadership and responsibility for the thousands of deaths occurring each day from COVID. It's not exactly clear when that will happen, Obviously, the fact that he's still arguing he won the election, even after the Supreme Court ruled and the Electoral College voted, and is planning on holding major events January 20th, the day of Joe Biden's inauguration, suggests that that day is not coming anytime soon. While nothing, short of a coup, will stop Biden from becoming the 46th president, the GOP may try one more gambit. A bunch of House Republicans, led by Alabama's Mo Brooks, are planning on rustling up some bogus group of non-certified electors and submitting them to Congress in time for the January 6th official acceptance of the Electoral College tally that showed Biden with 306 and Trump with 232. But they can't force a congressional vote unless they can get a senator to join with them. Mitch McConnell, who took about six weeks before he could bring himself to call Biden the president-elect, says he does not want any of his colleagues to be part of that effort. But Tommy Tuberville, the newly elected senator from Alabama, has not ruled out joining the challenge. Back to the president-elect. In assembling his cabinet, Biden has selected two House members to join the team. Ohio's Marsha Fudge, to head up the Agriculture Department, and Deb Holland of New Mexico for the Interior Department. In addition, he's chosen Cedric Richmond of Louisiana to be a White House senior advisor and director of the Office of Public Engagement. The selection of Holland is history-making. Not only will she become the first Native American to serve in the cabinet, but she'll be heading up a department that is deeply involved in matters involving Indian country. Here she was last summer, remotely addressing the Democratic National Convention. My people survived centuries of slavery, genocide, and brutal assimilation policies. But throughout our past, tribal nations have fought for and helped build this country. There were those like my Laguna grandparents who worked on our country's railroad, and those like my mother, a Navy veteran who served this country with honor. I stand here today a proud 35th generation New Mexican and one of the first Native American women ever elected to Congress. I'm a symbol of our resilience as the embodiment of America's progress as a nation. Given the fact that the Democrats lost at least 10 seats in the House in this year's election, forfeiting three more for the cabinet will shrink Nancy Pelosi's margin even further. The special elections to fill these seats can't come soon enough for Democrats, who would be favored to retain all three. 
And that leads to this week's trivia question. Who was the last House member to join a new administration and watch their seat go to the other party in a special election? Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner will get a fabulous vintage Political Junkie button. Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll reveal the answer and winner of last week's trivia question later in the show, so stay tuned. There's a new day in you. There is gold in the blue. There is hope in the hearts of men. All the world's on the way to a sunnier day, cause the road is open again. There's a no On Monday, the Republic held. Electors from all 50 states and the District of Columbia met in their respective locales and confirmed the presidential vote, giving Joe Biden 306 electoral votes, more than the necessary 270, to make him the nation's 46th president. There is still another step to come, the official certification of the Electoral College tally by Congress on January 6th. Some Republicans are talking about sending competing slates of electors, uncertified, to Congress on the 6th to give lawmakers one more shot at reversing an election that they claim was tainted and stolen from President Trump. But for now, sanity reigned. No elector bolted. None of the 538 electors broke from voting for Biden or Trump, which they could have, as 17 states allow them to vote for anyone they chose. Had the election been close say the way it was in 2000, when George W. Bush received 271 electoral votes, so-called faithless electors could have made things dicey. But this year, none caused trouble. Four years ago, in the race between two unpopular candidates, two electors defected from Trump and five switched from Hillary Clinton, the largest number of faithless electors in history. Three other Clinton electors tried to bolt, but they were thwarted by their state laws that disallowed it. Those in the country who want to abolish the Electoral College often point to the power these electors have, these usually nameless and faceless party loyalists who could ignore their state vote and pick anyone they preferred. Faithless electors are not widely admired. But Emily Conrad has a different perspective. She has written a new book entitled The Faithless... The Untold Story of the Electoral College, where she interviewed eight of the faithless electors from 2016 who explained their motivations and reasonings. Emily, welcome to The Political Junkie. Thank you so much for having me. I will be honest with you. I am not a fan of faithless electors. I I always feel that the fact is, like what could have happened in 2000, that George W. Bush got 271 electoral votes. If two Bush electors had switched and voted for somebody else, it would, they would have thrown the election into the uh, House of Representatives, which I think would have caused chaos. Not that 2000 wasn't chaotic enough, but I think the point I want to get to is very few people understand that we don't actually vote for president on election day. We vote for electors who then vote for president a month later. But then we saw 10 electors in 2016, and this is the, the, the back, backbone of your book. We saw 10 electors in 2016 deciding on their own to vote for someone else. What do you make of this whole process, and what have you learned 
uh, from from your interviews with these so-called faithless electors? Well, the process is much more complicated than whatever uh, than than what most of the media portrays on television. Uh, the Electoral College is often uh, portrayed as an, an afterthought or something that's ceremonial. And in my research and through my conversations with electors, I discovered that it is anything but. Um, another thing is that the Electoral College is often presented as the singular monolithic organization. And as we really see um, based off of uh, Monday's Electoral College vote and, of course, off of 2016, it is not a singular monolithic organization. Essentially, it's electors meeting in every single state. Basically, what you what you see and what I think that Donald Trump and the, and the Trump campaign were very aware of this time around is that uh, that you have individual state laws and election codes that really have a lot of impact and sway over the Electoral College. Um, for example, one of the things that uh, a lot of readers of my book often comment on is just kind of the different ways by which electors find themselves as an electors. There's no singular way in which uh, nationwide you see an elector become an elector. Um, in some states, they're chosen at district caucuses, uh, congressional district caucuses. In other states, they're chosen at conventions. In other states, they're hand-selected by uh, a party executive chair or committee. And when, when, and, and when in the calendar are they chosen? It depends on the state, and it also depends on the party. And that is one of the things that it was so singular about 2016. You had two very um, hotly contested primary races in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And a lot of the electors were chosen as electors before it was clear who would be the party nominee. And I thought that that was extremely interesting, and that probably has uh, has definitely an impact over why you saw so many defections in 2016 versus in 2020. Um, basically, uh, almost every single Democratic elector, actually every single Democratic elector I spoke with in 2016 who ended up defecting were originally Bernie Sanders supporters. And in, in my book, besides, um, we, we did see two faithless electors on the Republican side um, who actually ended up voting faithlessly, both from Texas, surprisingly. Um, but we also ended up seeing uh, two Republican uh, electors who publicly said that they were going to vote faithlessly, and then they ended up stepping down. Um, after receiving pressure um, from, I guess, the general public as well as from their party. And I also explain um, and I also delve into their narratives in my book as well. In talking to these electors, what did you come away with? I mean, they're patriots. They believe in democracy. They, they represent a threat to democracy. What, 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 what's your gut feeling when, that you came away with? So my, my entire process behind writing this book was that I was in the middle of my uh, my graduate degree in uh, Beijing, China, where I was studying international relations at Peking University. And I was writing this paper, and I had to include a footnote about the Electoral College. And whenever I was researching it, I came across one single sentence that talked about faithless electors. And from a, you know, I came about it from a national, um, national, uh, international perspective and talking about, you know, foreign interference. That was such a major topic uh, that was talked about after the 2016 election. And I thought to myself, there are 538 votes that count at the end of the day. 
And we saw so many faceless electors. And, you know, immediately I started thinking, could you have something like foreign interference, a bad faith foreign or domestic actor really start playing around with the Electoral College? And that was my initial fear in, in, in even starting researching this book. Um, what I found in the process of interviewing the electors, and of course, I would um, I would encourage your listeners to, to, of course, read the book and kind of hear the different uh, how these electors came to these individual uh, decisions, because although they all voted faithlessly um, or publicly considered a faithless vote, they all got there through very different ways. Um, but one of the things I do feel quite strongly is that at least in 2016, everybody who voted faithlessly thought that they were doing so for the betterment of the country. And for me, that was fascinating <laughs> to do, um, you know, because these are basically nameless and faithless individuals. In the book, um, you, you talk a little bit about the late Roger McBride, uh, the, the Virginia elector who was pledged to Richard Nixon in 1972, but who instead voted for the libertarian candidate, John Hospers. I think that was, you know, I remember the 72 election very well. And I, I, I remember thinking that was the first time I ever heard of faithless electors. But, but then it was only like once, one year, or maybe one, another year. And the fact that you had seven confirmed uh, faithless electors in 2016, that's pretty remarkable. You talk about all the things that could, you know, undercut people's confidence in the, in the elections. You talk about Russian interference. But the fact is that we're voting for electors who then can, many of whom could vote for whoever they want. Uh, 2016 was really interesting because, you know, we mentioned these 10 electors who wanted to vote faithlessly. But um, I inter- but you also saw a major lobbying effort called the Hamilton Electors Movement in 2016 as well. And based off of the founders and my interviews with the founders of this movement in my book, they, they basically claimed that there were upwards of 50 Republican electors considering defecting from, tw- from Trump in 2016, which, of course, would have then denied him the 270 uh, uh, votes in order, uh, electoral college votes in order to win. Let me go to your book for some specifics regarding the electors from 2016 you spoke with. One of the faithless was uh, Robert Satyacom. He was a, a Clinton delegate from Washington. He decided to cast his vote for Faith Spotted Eagle, a fellow Native American activist who led the successful effort to block the development of the Dakota Access Pipeline in South Dakota. What was Robert's motivation? I mean, did he think Faith Spotted Eagle should be president? What was that about? Well, Robert had a very interesting, um, he had a very interesting narrative. Um, First of all, he was also, he was a a Bernie uh, delegate to the DNC in Philadelphia. And he became very uh, much disenchanted with the Democratic Party at the DNC. Um, He was out in the media tent protesting uh, Clinton's win. And he went back to Washington State very disillusioned with the entire system. In the meantime, he actually went out to Standing Rock, and he was there um, protesting uh, the development of the pipeline. And that is kind of how he really began to see Faith Spotted Eagle and encountered Faith Spotted Eagle. So you start to see this idea kind of formulating in his mind um, before, of course, the, um, the Electoral College vote. But he was very much disillusioned with uh, the Democratic Party and uh, and their treatment of Bernie Sanders, which I think was the catalyst for his faithless vote. 
And as he began to think about uh, what sort of leader that he would want to see in, in office, he decided to choose Faith Spotted Eagle. Interestingly, his vote was the first electoral college vote for, some, for a Native American. So the, another first was pioneered by a faithless elector in 2016. First of all, one thing I learned from your book, and it didn't, didn't even occur to me, that the people who were, were disenchanted, the electors who were disenchanted in 2016, they were on the Republican side uh, supporters of Ron Paul and on the Democratic side supporters of Bernie Sanders. Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders did have that in common. They fought against the establishment. They, uh, their supporters felt that they were uh, robbed out of a fair uh, chance for the nomination. So they may have more in common than most people would have thought. So 2016 was, I think, a particularly special election year because you did see these divisions so clearly within the party. And you really saw maybe a battle for the heart of what the parties would end up looking like. Yeah, I was thinking there was a woman in 2000, I think from Washington, D.C., who, who was an Al Gore delegate, but she decided to cast no vote as a protest because the District of Columbia had no representation in Congress. So she was trying to make a political point by skipping her vote. What did you? What sense did you get from talking to these people? Did they Were they just angry at the system? Did they want attention? Did, or did they feel that there was something inherently wrong with the system? Many of them feel that there's something inherently wrong with the system. And many of them have a different way of why, why they feel that one way or another. Um, you have several uh, Democratic electors who said, I disagree with the whole concept of the Electoral College. But since I'm in this role and since this is what it says, this is what I'm going to do. Um, in the Republican side, you also see this is a way, especially if one uh, candidate or if the, of the issues that they really support aren't being represented by the party, this is a way to get the party's attention um, through a faithless vote. And I mean, from, from what I've heard, in 2016, the Republican leadership were calling up all of their electors, making sure, hey, are you on board with making sure that, Trump, that you're going to be voting for Trump? So, I mean, this is a way of um, – because we assume that, that these electors are going to be maybe uh, maybe wealthier individuals from a higher socioeconomic background, but the, the Electoral College is actually remarkably diverse, especially whenever you add in the fact um, that you are having people voted in by their peers. Um, you have all different levels of socioeconomic uh, situations. You have people of different ages, of different backgrounds, of different education levels. And whenever they're given this opportunity as one of the 538 votes that, that, that really matters, they all go through this, this process of, oh, what does this mean? And some of them uh, interpret their rights and responsibilities perhaps somewhat differently. When you talk about rights and responsibilities, what do you say to people who say, well, like, you know, with, what was his name, uh, yeah, Robert Satyakam uh, in Washington, 1.7 million people from Washington state, 54% of the total, voted for Hillary Clinton. But Satyakam says he wants to vote for a faith-spotted eagle. Uh, in Texas, Bill Green, one of the electors you spoke to, uh, supported Ron Paul, even though Donald Trump uh, won the state by nearly 800,000. Now, yes, they, they're voting their conscience, but it has the possibility of negating what millions and millions of voters had to say during the primaries and caucuses, no? 
It, it does. And this is why I think that we should be discussing this um, and discussing this topic of what the Electoral College is. One of the, the things that, that happened um, in this past year, which kind of went under the radar, was uh, the Supreme Court's decisions on binding electoral laws. Basically, what the Supreme Court decided in Shafello versus Washington and uh, Colorado versus Baca, and by, by the way, uh, Brett Shafalo and uh, Michael Baca, the namesakes of those cases, are both interviewed in my book. Um, basically, what it was decided in these Supreme Court cases were, are that binding elector laws implemented by states are not unconstitutional. And this was really, uh, um, basically, this is a unanimous decision, which a lot of people were quite surprised at, but the justices were very concerned about avoiding chaos in the election. However, in some ways, it made the system, I think, slightly more complicated because by saying that state laws could implement laws, um, what happens if a state doesn't have binding elector laws? Or what if a state has uh, an elector law that doesn't really have any sort of teeth to it? What if it's just a $1,000 fine um, or a slap on the wrist? So basically, 14 states have binding elector laws that can remove an elector after a faithless vote. And then 33 uh, states, including those 14, have some sort of binding uh, law apparatus, including a fine. But in the others, there's no such uh, binding elector law. So we really have to think about this. Are, are in those states, are electors truly free agents? And it does present an ethical problem um, for, to many with this idea that they could just vote for whomever they, they so chose um, without really considering much about the state's popular vote. But uh, of people who oppose binding elector laws often say this is just one step towards binding an elector to a state's popular vote. It's just one step towards binding an elector to the national popular vote. Or is it, or so, is it, or is it one more step to perhaps saying the system is not working, maybe it's time for just electing a president by direct popular vote? Yes, exactly. So a lot of, uh, you know, the electoral college is changing. And I think that what after um, the 2020 election, I think what we're going to start to see is a lot more calls at a state level and at a local level to develop an apparatus uh, or a legal sort of uh, code um, and laws at a state level to kind of constrain the electoral college into what they want it to be. However, it's really interesting because in 2017, you saw a lot of calls in Texas because you saw two faithless electors. You saw a lot of calls in Texas to implement binding elector laws, and they never passed through the Texas state legislature because the Texas state legislature said this is not in accordance to the the framers of the Constitution's original intent with uh, the, the whole idea of the Electoral College. So basically now what we have is that in one state you can have a faithless elector, in another state it's illegal, in another state the vote stands but the person is fined, in another state the elector is removed entirely and replaced. The Electoral College has actually become even more complicated than it was before. And in addition to everything else we've talked about, this year we saw several state delegations of electors meeting in undisclosed locations in order to prevent protests and intimidation. And even in 2016, you saw a lot of electors uh, being threatened 
and a lot of electors being lobbied um, to change their votes. Um, I, I've continued my, my research into into this topic, um, even into into 2020. And I've talked with uh, electors from 2016 who have told me that they were offered bribes to change their vote. And, of course, they, they sent on uh, these uh, requests on to the Department of Homeland Security and, and, of, and to the FBI. But, I mean, this is a threat that electors do face. Um, a lot of coercion, a lot of uh, death threats, even offers of bribery. And... Um, you know, and, and it just kind of gets swept under the rug, and then four years later, it happens all over again. Um, the, the system is, is, in that way, is, is a very unsustainable, and, and I think that a lot of people, they don't realize that that, that exists. Emily, thank you so much for uh, depressing our entire audience. Uh, Emily Conrad is the author of The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. Emily, this is important stuff, and it was just really great having you on the program. Thank you so much. It's time to reveal the answer and winner of last week's trivia question, which was... Who was the longest-serving Hispanic in the current Congress? The answer, Jose Serrano. A Democrat from the Bronx, Serrano won a special election in March of 1990 to succeed the scandal-played Robert Garcia, also a Democrat, who resigned. Serrano, suffering from Parkinson's disease, did not seek re-election this year. And the randomly selected winner is Henry Cohn of Denver, Colorado. Henry wins the coveted Political Junkie button. Don't forget, you can always find our political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. conversation about faithless electors brought to mind an interview I conducted years ago with one such elector. A Republican from Washington State, Mike Padden was supposed to vote for Gerald Ford, who carried Washington in 1976, but Padden instead voted for Ronald Reagan, who wasn't even on the ballot that fall. He had earlier lost his challenge to Ford in the GOP primaries. Mike Padden is now a member of the Washington State Senate, Four years ago, we talked to him about his decision. We're replaying that interview now. Mike, welcome to The Political Junkie. Well, uh, very nice to be on your program, Ken. I I did want to correct one thing, and it was rather unique at our uh, 1976 uh, Republican convention in Spokane, where I was selected to be an elector. There was no uh, pledge. There was no uh, even talk of a requirement to uh, vote for whoever carried the state. I, I admit, you know, probably a lot of people expected that, but there was uh, no no pledge. So you could have, so, I mean, of course, as in many states, these electors could vote for whomever they want, and you decided to vote for Ronald Reagan. 
Well, that's right. In fact, uh, with founders, when they founded the Electoral College, uh, I mean, some states uh, early on, I, I don't even think there was a popular election. The electors were just chosen to some extent. But yes, I uh, I thought about it, though, and, and electors are supposed to use their, their judgment. So there were some unique circumstances. I uh, came out of the pro-life movement. Ronald Reagan was a strong uh, pro-life advocate, really cared about the vulnerable unborn, and I wanted to see if I could support that position, but I didn't want to do it uh, if it possibly could cost Gerald Ford the election. So there had been a lawsuit that year in Ohio uh, where there was a question of whether or not uh, the Republicans would be able to overturn the results that gave the state for Carter. Uh, there's three-hour time difference, so when we uh, met as electors, right before that I had called the state of Ohio, the Secretary of State, found out that the, in the federal court case that the, uh, it had been thrown out and the electors met and cast their electoral votes for Carter. So there was still a wide difference in the number of votes, and there was no possible way uh, that uh, Ford could win. I did cast... Uh, Electoral College vote for vice president for Bob Dole. So, um, so what, what do you think of the fact that every every four years um, we look at the list of faithless electors, we see Mike Patton doing this his thing in 1976, and once again you're remembered in Howard's thoughts. Uh, do, do you expect those phone calls to come every four years, and have they been coming every four years since 1976? Well, pretty much. They they come more often depending on how close the Electoral College vote is. So uh, this year it seems uh, pretty safe, at least 290, I guess, maybe 306 Electoral College votes for President-elect Trump. Right, 306, so, 306 if you include Michigan, right. Right, right. So anyway, I, I mean, there'll be some, uh, and and we can talk about it. But I think, you know, I, I like I say, I did exercise some judgment did want to make a point uh, as uh, as to the pro-life cause, and uh, I, I think all that got accomplished. Uh, afterwards, uh, Lynn Knopfsinger issued a statement, a public statement, that uh, uh, Ronald Reagan appreciated my vote. And uh, I've always told people I was just ahead of my time four years. Right. Did you get uh, any negative feedback? Uh, did you get uh, any, any I, I did get one from the then Spokane County Republican chairman who said, well, that's the end of you, Pat, and you'll never get elected to dog catcher. But uh, other than that, I also had a number of people who called and congratulated me. And you never ran for dog catcher, so it didn't matter, No, right? so it didn't work. I did, <laughs> did run for the legislature in 1980, four years later, and got elected uh, from my district that I represent now. So you're saying that uh, g given the fact that you took the time to call the elect election officials in Ohio, had the election been closer, if your decision could have affected the outcome, and of course I'm thinking of Bush versus Gore in 2000, which was so close with the Electoral College votes, so you, you, you wouldn't have made the same decision if it could have affected the result. Right. If, it, it, if, it, if that court uh, had ruled and, and Ford carried Ohio, it would have put it, I think, within three electoral votes, and uh, I didn't want to uh, risk that. But uh, but when it was thrown out, I decided to go ahead with what I had planned to do. How does one become an elector? Uh, how, how did you become an elector? I became an elector because I was involved. I was 30 years old. I was involved with the uh, Reagan for President uh, Committee in Spokane County, 
we had a caucus convention system that year, and uh, all but two congressional districts, I think we had nine at the time, uh, went for uh, uh, Reagan. And so uh, they said, hey, would you like to be a delegate and go to Kansas City? I said, well, I'd love to be a delegate. The only problem is I'm, you know, just uh, uh, don't, don't really have the funds for the $3,000 or whatever it was to go to Kansas City. So, well, how about being an elector then? I said, well, that sounds great. So that was that was it. I was put on the uh, slate. Spokane County uh, pretty much dominates, uh, has about 60% of the population of the 5th Congressional District in, in our state. And uh, I got, got elected by the delegates at that state convention to be an elector. And, uh, and I mentioned earlier that for President Ford had carried Washington uh, that year. That was back in the time when Washington was allowed to vote for Republican candidates for president. They changed the rules, right? Well, they, they pretty much have, along with uh, the rules as whether or not Republicans can uh, vote for a governor. We've the state that's gone the longest without a Republican governor. So we're behind Massachusetts and Maryland and some, some of those states. So, uh, But I think eventually our time will come. Uh, but, right, it didn't happen this year. What do you say to those Democrats who were trying to do, not uh, similar to what you tried to do? I mean, you had a cause, a pro-life cause in 1976, which caused you to vote for Ronald Reagan. What about those Democrats who are trying to get electors to switch from Trump to Clinton? Whether you think that can happen or not, what do you say to those Democrats who are trying to do the same thing? Well, I mean, I, I think the electors there that are that are uh, uh, for for Trump uh, uh, are, are in all probability going to going to vote for him, just just like I would have voted for for Ford. Uh, I don't think that'll be successful. I think more likely we have one or two electors in our state uh, which went for Clinton that have said they are not going to vote for Clinton. At least one has indicated that. So I think it's very unlikely. Uh, uh, that uh, the Trump uh, presidency would be put in doubt as to whether or not he'll get enough votes in the Electoral College. But do you appreciate the fact, or do you, do you recognize the, uh, the, the the fervor that some of these same people have uh, in 2016 that you may have had in 1976? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, for, for a different cause. Like I say, most of, most of the uh, publicity here has been about uh, Mr. Satyakum, who is... Uh, a delegate that, uh, or an elector that supported Bernie Sanders and is very concerned about uh, Clinton's policy on environmental issues, and he's indicated he's not going to vote for for her uh, here December 19th when they all meet. So I guess we'll we'll see if he changes his mind, but that's what he has said publicly. Do you have any regrets about that move uh, 40 years ago? No, I, I really don't. I uh, still uh, very strongly feel that uh, the unborn need protection, and uh, that was uh, it ended up a way to uh, emphasize uh, Governor Reagan's uh, approach. And uh, he later became president. I think did a lot of good. So I'm I'm you know would 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 do the same thing. I think of uh, was uh, if I was 40 years younger. <laughs> Mike Patton is a Republican state senator from Washington. As a GOP elector back in 1976, he voted for not the candidate who took, who carried the state of Washington, that was President Ford, but Ronald Reagan. Uh, Mike Patton becomes one of the few people in presidential history known as a faithless elector. Mike, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you, Ken. Talk to you later. But before you go, Mike, before you go. Yes. I, one thing I forgot to add, I noticed your birthday was November 13th. 
I want you to know that we share the same birthday. Wow. Yep. Well, what, yeah. yeah, that's... So, uh, that's so, amazing. So I think it's important for our audience to know that, and if they want to send us <laughs> gifts, you know, they should do that. People should know that. So happy. All right. Happy, Thank you. Happy belated birthday. Happy birthday to you too. Thanks All so right. much. Bye. Bye bye. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at the Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Our next show will be our annual In Remembrance program, reflecting on those who died this year. I hope you'll listen, and please be safe.